unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And thank you once again for hitting that play button. And glad you are listening. Coming up on today's show, talk to one of my former Paxson Broadcasting colleagues. He is Peter King, currently a correspondent anchor for CBS News Radio. We'll talk some baseball and his coverage of SpaceX as human space flight was resumed here in the year 2020. We'll talk about all that with Peter coming up in just a few moments. And uh, I mentioned we would talk about some baseball. Will there be a baseball season? One day you feel like it's going to happen, the next day you don't. And the players have pretty much thrown it out there and put it all back in the owner's court by saying, we reject your last proposal, just tell us where and when. So now the owners have to uh, decide what their next move is or what Commissioner Rob Manfred's next move is going to be as to whether there will be a season, what kind of season we will have if there is one. It's just all still a jumbled mess. And, you know, the players kind of calling the owners out a little bit because, you know, they say they have no revenue stream, but they just signed a new extension with Turner Sports for lots of money, I believe, billion dollars that, uh, you know, there's future revenue to be had. But we shall see as far as that goes. The NBA, it was looking Lock solid that the uh, NBA season would resume in the Orlando bubble, but maybe not so fast on that. It does seem that uh, there's a little bit of pushback by some NBA players, um, notably among them Kyrie Irving, uh, Dwight Howard, Donovan Mitchell, Carmelo Anthony. Um, and a lot of theirs has to do with uh, fighting uh, the racism battle. And uh, it's not so much uh, geared towards uh, the coronavirus. Players apparently upset that they did not get to individually vote on the proposal to play. It was approved by the union, however. The players can sit out and restart the, the, the restart of the season without punishment, but they won't get paid. So the greatest incentive to restart for both the NBA and the players comes down to money. And not playing could be devastated financially for players. According to ESPN, could result in about $1.2 billion in lost salary, $2 billion in lost revenue for the league, and gives the NBA leverage to tear up their current uh, CBA and negotiate a new one. So LeBron James, who is in favor of uh, resuming the, sa- the season, did not take in this big conference call that uh, Kyrie Irving led uh, as uh, there's some rumblings about maybe not uh, wanting to play the season. So we shall see where all of that lands. All right, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show a former colleague of mine from Paxson Broadcasting. He worked at 740 Wins News when I was across the hall at 540 The Team. And for the last 20 years or so, he's been a correspondent and anchor for CBS News Radio. It is so great to have Peter King with us. Peter, how are you? Jeff, good. It's nice to reconnect after all this time. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Good to see you. And, uh, you know, how have things been going for you since uh, the world changed in mid-March? Well, you know, I like to boast that I'm the original work-at-home guy or work-from-home guy and, uh, You know, uh, I also like to say that I was the least inconvenienced of anybody on the planet because 
I've been working from my home behind UCF uh, for more than 20 years now. And, uh, you know, I was I was the best equipped to handle all of this. So it's included everything from reporting to uh, anchoring six or seven weeks of newscasts from here while all uh, my coworkers moved out of the broadcast center in New York and started working from their homes and getting set up. And there were so many moving parts. You know, I feel like I was the one guy who had no moving parts whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, you said you've been doing the home studio, the work, work from home before work from home was cool. And, you know, how has the technology changed, especially well, in recent years? Well, back in the 1990s, when I had uh, my first high-quality line installed here, it was something called ISDN, which was a phone line, and it was very high-quality and state-of-the-art for the time. It sounded terrific on the radio, and if you were listening on the radio, it sounded like you were in a studio or, or next door. Now, the technology changes to something that is Internet-based, and it sounds light years cleaner than ISDN ever did. There's no hiss, no pops, no crackles, no clicks. Uh, it, 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 if ISDN sounded like I was uh, next door, uh, this technology sounds like I'm sitting on your lap and talking right into your ear. Sure, sure. So, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we're, we are going to talk some baseball in a little bit, but I did have to ask you, I would be remiss because there's been lots of activity over on the Space Coast these days with uh, SpaceX and everything going on with that. Uh, uh, can you share your thoughts with me on, you know, the resurgence, if you will, of manned space flight? Well, first of all, we're not calling it manned space flight. We haven't called it that in a long time. Okay. It's now human space flight. And by the way, NASA's human space flight division, which used to be called manned space flight, is now led by a woman. Okay, good. Good. So... That said, can I tell you something? I mean, when when we went off the air after the last launch and landing of the space shuttle back in 2011, some of my words included, we don't know when we'll be here to do this again in terms of human space flight. And I don't think anybody ever talked thought that it would take almost nine years to do it, but it did. And I'm just very, very glad to see that uh, we are indeed launching human beings again from the space coast. The SpaceX launch, by the time we're talking, it's been almost three weeks. Uh, the, uh, the launch was absolutely what space has needed for a very, very long time. But the nine years that it took to get there is a reminder of just how hard it is to do this stuff, especially when you're a private company, a startup country, a company that's only been in it in one way, shape, or form for less than two decades. So, you know, my, my hat's off, and uh, I think everybody's hat's off to SpaceX in terms of getting them up there. Now we need to get those astronauts back down here safely so we know that, that uh, they can do a round trip, and that'll happen later on this summer. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, my dad worked in the aerospace industry all his life, and so I've always had a great fascination for the space program and all that went on with that. And you think about SpaceX, and you said it's been less than 20 years they've been around, and you look at all the big stalwarts like Boeing and, you know, Martin Marietta, Lockheed, which have now are one. Um, it's amazing to think that they have become the top of the ladder in the industry. Well, absolutely. And, and look, even if you talk to Elon Musk, he, he'll tell you that he thought the odds of him pulling off what he's pulled off 
for probably less than 1%. Uh, and that's a far cry from what, uh, you know, we would have heard from him maybe uh, seven or eight years ago because uh, there was a lot of hubris there and there was a lot of uh, bragging there. And you know something? He learned a couple of very hard lessons away uh, along the way uh, about how hard it is to do this stuff. And I think, uh, you know, that it, it could be the great equalizer, the great humbler, if you will. But it is hard. And what he and his company have accomplished are pretty amazing. They beat Boeing, a well-established aerospace company. They beat Boeing to become the first commercial company to put humans in space. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it most definitely is. So in all the many years that you've been covering uh, things along the Space Coast, uh, what is the most, what's the most favorite thing you've covered? <laughs> you know something, it, it, it's hard because I, I covered 60 something shuttle missions and I've covered all kinds of interplanetary missions. And I think of all the shuttle missions, there are a couple. Uh, the return to flight after the Columbia accident, uh, I think covering the investigation after the Columbia accident was certainly a revelation for me. And I learned so much along the way uh, about space and about journalism, because this was, uh, you know, this was only six or seven years after I became a space reporter. And it was the first really serious thing to go wrong uh, on, on uh, the other uh, end of the spectrum. Uh, you want to talk about elation because Nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets killed. All the missions that the shuttle astronauts flew to upgrade and refurbish the Hubble Space Telescope. I think there were uh, five of them, and I think it did four out of the five. And covering those was a joy because uh, the Hubble was never meant to be fixed in space. And what these men and women did up there over the course of all those missions was nothing short of amazing. You know, of course, you did mention, you know, the, the tragedy you know, with Columbia. You know, that's obviously the space program goes with many, many risks. These guys, uh, you know, I, I respect astronauts so much because, you know, you can practice everything on the ground 100 times, 100. And it's, you know, once you go up there and once you're going at, you know, how many miles an hour you're going up into space, that's got to be an amazing feeling for them. And it comes with a lot of risk. Well, of course it does. And I think what happened was in the shuttle era, the general public got used to seeing the shuttles go up and the, the video of spacewalkers uh, doing their thing out and around. And, you know, everybody kind of became a whole hum about it. You know, as, as uh, the Apollo fire did in 1967, as Challenger did in 1986, the Columbia accident uh, reminded us of how hard it is to do this stuff and how risky and how deadly space can be. Very, very unforgiving. And the shuttle, as much as wonderful a spacecraft as it was, you know, the shuttle had its own faults and fragilities. You know, the, uh, the reinforced carbon carbon of the leading edge that ruptured, that was ruptured by a fast-moving piece of foam insulation. I think it's probably the last thing any of us would have thought about until we started learning about past problems and the details of the investigation. The tiles were always fragile and brittle and breaking off and, and things like that. It was a wonderful flying machine, but it was awfully complicated. It was really, really high maintenance. And that's one of the things that I really love about the SpaceX Crew Dragon is that 
it is it is simpler yet much smarter than the shuttle was in terms of its technology its its ability to to fly itself uh, as long as the software keeps working and its robustness uh, using the uh, capsule design instead of a space plane uh, for which you don't really need the wings until you're landing. So I think going back to the capsule design was uh, was very, very smart. And uh, how has it been different covering launches and, and news stories uh, under the COVID-19 restrictions? How different was it? Well, I actually did get to go to KSC to cover the uh, SpaceX launch, and it was the first story that I did outside the home since early March. Uh, over at uh, the Cape, NASA limited the number of reporters. We had strict rules we had to follow, social distancing and that sort of thing. Uh, within our company, we had strict rules that we had to follow before going to work in our own building. We were only NASA would have originally allowed us to have about 20 people for television in, in the building, which was uh, pretty amazing. And, and one for radio, that would have been me. Uh, our company wanted to restrict the crew, the uh, TV crew, and wound up restricting the TV crew to about uh, six or seven people because they didn't want more people increasing the risk of catching something. So... Uh, it worked out very, very well. It was different. I mean, if we go back to the John Glenn Space Shuttle flight from more than 20 years ago, Jeff, we had an army of probably about 100-something people in that building, including uh, three or four for radio. This time it was seven or eight, including, including me. Uh, in terms of uh, covering stories from home, well, we do our interviews on the phone as we always have, but we try to do Skype and Zoom and things like that because the sound quality is much is much better. And of course, in radio, the sound is the thing. If you don't have good sound, if you don't have sound that people can understand, why even bother? Yeah, no question about it. So uh, uh, that, I, that said, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a reporter's reporter who loves to go out and do a story. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I hate being chained to a desk. But look, I'm not going to put myself at risk of catching something because I want to live to report another day. So that's how it goes for now. Yes, and we want you to as well. So uh, appreciate uh, that. Thank yes. you. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I wanted to have you on to talk some baseball because uh, yeah, I recall you being a big baseball fan. We're doing this on Zoom, so I see you have a, a New York Mets shirt on. Uh, are you gonna? You know, some days I think we're gonna see baseball, and some days I don't. <laughs> Where do you do you think you're gonna see your Mets play this year? I don't think so, and I think, you know, if you take a look at the uh, labor impasse between the owners and the players, we've been going back and forth publicly for weeks now, and I just don't see this coming to, a, to an ending. And I'm going to take my reporter's hat off and put my fan's hat on. And quite frankly, the more time that goes by, the more I think that, you know, a 2020 season, why bother? I mean, if it comes down to 50 or 60 games as a regular season, then that's not a season. I mean, in a normal season, you're just getting warmed up by them. You know, I'm thinking that maybe they need to get their act together. wanted to use another word, but uh, <laughs> I think you know what I'm saying here. Yes, I do. They need to figure it out labor-wise. And I also think that, you know, perhaps – 
you know, it's not quite safe enough for uh, the players to go back into camps and uh, uh, for, for them to start playing games, even without fans in the stands. I mean, I just don't feel good about any of this. So I, 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 as much as I love the game and as much as uh, I miss seeing games every night, my wife and I are both huge fans. I think, I think maybe the smart thing would be just to step back, figure it out, and get, get their act together for next year instead. Yeah, and I tell you, it's been kind of disheartening as you watch, you know, uh, uh, especially during these times, watch millionaires and billionaires uh, quibble over money. Well, yeah, but you know something, it's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than that. Keep in mind that um, the players feel as if they've given up a lot in their last collective bargaining agreement. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of talk within the industry that they feel that uh, Tony Clark Players Association president is not a good negotiator and really gave up way too much that Rob Manfred, commissioner, really had his way with him. That's part of the reason why you have this impasse right now. Players don't want to give up any more of their pay than they've already given up for a short season. And they will file a grievance if the commissioner decides he's going to unilaterally say, all right, we're going to have a season that's going to be 50 or 60 games. Get to work. There will be a grievance filed by the Players Association and uh, the experts, people who are much smarter and much more informed than I am on this, have all told me players will win. And that will cost the owners billions of dollars, possibly. And the other thing is that uh, Ken Rosenthal, who is one of my favorite writers, and I read him regularly in The Athletic, he's reported that there are at least eight owners who don't want to play this year because they feel like they'll lose a great deal of cash in playing, and maybe they just want to concentrate on getting it back on the field next year. Yeah, and you mentioned Tony Clark, and that's an interesting aspect because you think of all the negotiations of the years when they've done, obviously, with the legendary Marvin Miller and with Donald Fear. These guys were, you know, they they drew a hard line. And I guess Tony Clark has not really done that same type of work for the players, it seems. Well, I talked with Bill Madden, who is uh, one of my favorite baseball writers of all time. Bill Madden of the New York Daily News, Hall of Famer. It's the only name I'm likely to drop during this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know Bill Madden. There you, you know, go. I don't, know that he, I don't know that he walks around bragging, hey, I know Peter King. Because <laughs> they'll say, oh, which one? You're right. <laughs> but no, I, I, I did a story with Bill this week for CBS. And he said, look, you know, Tony Clark is not a negotiator. Marvin Miller was. He knew how to make a deal. He knew how to get his point across and stand by it. Yeah, he was a hardliner, but he got it done. And right now, you know, in, in his opinion, I think in a lot of opinions, a lot of opinions, the Players Association does not have a Marvin Miller, and they really, really need that. Uh, the guy who was really great at deal-making was Tony Clark's predecessor, Michael Weiner, who died of a brain tumor a few years ago. And a lot of people in the industry are saying, you know what, if Weiner were still here, we would probably have a deal. But they're also saying, if Manfred really cared about baseball, we would also have a deal. So, you know, there's always going to be plenty to go around on both sides. And, you know, that's the opposite of, 
there are fine people on both sides. <laughs> you know, I think there's enough blame to go around in this. And, and I think, you know, any, any informed person who's not totally taking a sign would certainly agree. Taking a side would agree. Yeah, I uh, you know thought it was probably somewhat ingenious of the players to come back with their last statement and saying, "Just tell us when and where," and putting the onus back on the owners. Yeah, tell us when and where so we can go to court and file our grievance. <laughs> <laughs> Take that. Yeah, so that was definitely a, a you know a strong move in the sand, if you will. Um, you know, and you're actually the the second person I've had on the show that thinks baseball really needs to kind of get their head clear and not have a season. So, uh, you know, I think more and more, that's starting to become a more and more prevailing opinion. Well, I I just think this is a lost year and there are so many question marks up in the air. And, you know, you and I talk a few miles apart here in Florida where we've got cases exploding again. And, uh, you know, I know the governor has said to the baseball people, hey, come on down here. You know, I don't know that that's uh, the smartest thing to do. And, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. Stand mm-hmm. back and wait. Now, I know a lot of people would disagree with me on that. Uh, but, uh, hey, look, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the New York Mets a little bit. Uh, where, what do you think is the uh, the state of the, the franchise uh obviously non-playing, notwithstanding. Well, the most intriguing thing right now is that the team is up for sale. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of Met fans who hate the Wilpons and have felt that the Wilpons have cheaped out over the years. Uh, I, I, I will not say that because I don't know that I totally buy into that. But, you know, New York fans are, are, are a special breed. Why don't we put it that way? And uh, you know, I, I'm a member of one group last year where, you know, everybody wanted the manager, Mickey Calloway, fired. And he was fired at the end of the season, even though they had a pretty decent year. So, you know, my, my solution in-house for everything right now is fire Mickey. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, you know, the Mets play in a stacked division. You have the defending champs in the Washington Nationals. The, uh, my Atlanta Braves are a strong team once again. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tough division uh, to, to crack and, and most likely even get a wild card. It is, but you know something I think, you know, look, if they were going to play this year under normal circumstances, I think the Mets could have been a contender. I think, you know, they've got pitching, they've got some really good hitting. As long as they're not depending on Jed Lowry, I think they, they'd, be, they'd be in really, really good shape. I love Pete Alonso at first base. And Pete is not just a, a marvelous player, but he is a real mensch of a man. Do you know what a mensch is? Uh, please inform me. <laughs> you know what? I should make you look it up. M-E-N-S-C-H. <laughs> it's, what, what it, it's, it's Yiddish for basically he's a hell of a guy and does the right thing. He's a good teammate. He's a team leader. He does right by the fans. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I'd like to see Robbie Cano have a bounce back year. And I know that he worked awfully hard in the off season to really get himself in better shape. So that might've done it. Yeah. The Mets lost Syndergaard because he's, he's out for the year with Tommy John surgery. They still have really good pitching. And I honestly don't believe that the bullpen 
uh, could possibly be as bad as it was last year. You know, I think Edwin Diaz, he may not be a 57-save closer, but I think he's certainly a lot better than he showed last year. And he's been, he's been working out uh, in the offseason as well. I think uh, before all this started, I got a chance to talk with uh, Luis Rojas, who is the new manager. And I think, uh, you know, he's a guy who's got uh, a real good be- baseball pedigree. His dad was, uh, is Felipe Alou, the great ball player of the 60s, 70s. Uh, his uh, older brother is Moises Alou. So he's grown up in a baseball family, and he's grown up in the Mets system. And I think he's, he's going to be a terrific leader for this team. And a lot of the guys who uh, are playing for the Mets now – uh, played for him in the minor leagues. You know, I'm thinking specifically, you know, guys like uh, Jake DeGrom and, and, and Jeff McNeil, who have turned out to be two of the best players and team leaders. So, you know, I, I think they've got a chance to be a really good competitive team here. Yeah, and I tell you, you, you mentioned the bullpen, and, and even the best teams had problems with their bullpens last year. That, that to me, being a bullpen pitcher, these days, unless you know, unless you've got the the closing stuff, is a is a very difficult task. Well, of course it is, but keep in mind, it's not just about closing stuff. It's about uh, being able to come into the seventh and eighth inning as well and shut down those innings. I mean, you know, baseball is now at least a four pitcher game. Your your starter goes six. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> and then you've got your seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guys. We've been watching a lot of the games on uh, on uh, MLB Network, the vintage games they've been rebroadcasting, and amazed at uh, how long some of the pitchers uh, it, it, it used to go back in the day. We watched Tom Seaver's 300th win, and it, we, nobody men- mentioned pitch counts, but you know he was well over the 100 mark uh, in, in the ninth inning back in 1985 when he was uh, with the White Sox, uh, and they, were, they, they weren't going to pull him out of the game because yeah. he was Tom Seaver. You know, he was a complete game pitcher. I remember a year where, you know, Catfish Hunter had almost 40 complete games. Mickey Lolich uh, in the 30s and pitched 380 innings in 1971. You're never going to see those kinds of numbers again. And, uh, you know, I, I, you don't want to burn your guys out. But I also believe that starting pitchers are starting pitchers. And, and uh, if they can go closer to the distance, you save your bullpen for when you really, really need it. Yeah, it, uh, those are great uh, numbers that you bring up uh, as far as complete games is because you know, guys won't even see those kind of numbers in their career, yeah. <laughs> let alone yeah. in a season. It's, yeah, it's, now, now get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, you know and I, I like you, I'm a traditionalist, but I have to say it is time to be universal with a designated hitter. I mean, at this point, we know it's not going away. Why have it in one league and not the other? Where do you stand on that? I don't. I don't particularly like the DH, but if it goes universal, I'm not going to, you know, kick and scream. Uh, I, I think it's got to go that way at some point. But hey, uh, this is what 2020, and we've gone 37 years without the DH in the National League, and uh, you know, nothing has gone terribly wrong. No, no, it hasn't. Um, so, as a Mets fan, uh, you know, the Mets have had some glory years. What is your what is your favorite Mets memory? 
Oh, boy. <laughs> Without a doubt, it's 1969. Those were my boys of summer. And uh, last year on the 50th anniversary, I got a chance to uh, interview Archamsky and Cleon Jones and Eddie Cranepool in spring training about the year. And Chamsky had a book that came out that was terrific. And I had, I brought with me, and remember, as a reporter, you can't ask anybody to sign anything. But I brought with me my scorecard from September 10th, 1969. It was the night the Mets went into first place for the very first time. And I got pictures of those guys holding that and my copy of the World Series program. I was at the September 10th game, not at the World Series. But, you know, uh, having them hold something that was mine and being able to get a picture of it, that was a thrill. There are so many great memories of that 69 season. Uh, we need uh, a week of podcast to talk about it. But <laughs> I think if you want to talk about the World Series, I think about uh, game three with the two great Tommy Agee catches. I think of the Don Clendenin home runs. I think of how, you know, bit players like, uh, Al Weiss and J.C. Martin all contributed to that World Series win. I think, think you know, of, of the great pitching they had with Sieber and Kuzman and Gentry and Tug McGraw and Ron Taylor in the bullpen and things like that. Like I said, these guys were my boys of summer, and, you know, I could go on and on. Of course, 1986 was also special. It was a different vibe. It was a different team. You know, I still have Vin Scully's call at the end of Game 6 of the World Series in my mind, and I replay that often uh, in my head. And uh, I've got DVDs of both World Series, and I watch them at least a couple of times a year because those were great, great times. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, I, I, I love the, the Boys of Summer reference because, you know, it's so amazing that, you know, you can go, you can remember the names of, of guys that played on your team in your childhood. I have a hard time remembering the guys on today's roster, but I can tell exactly. everybody who played back then. <laughs> exactly. You nailed it. I mean, I can't even tell you everybody who was on the 2000 World Series team that played in the Subway Series, but I can name you every player, just about every player from 69 and and 86 as well. Yeah, it is incredible. Um, Actually, as- I, your viewers, can, you, you, nobody can see this because we're not on uh, on video, but I'm going to show you something okay. in my office right now. And behind me, that's uh, the Mookie Wilson ground ball. Oh, well, okay, yeah. Legs, signed by the 86 Mets. And there you go. You can see the pennants from uh, 86 and 69, or excuse me, 73 and 69 up there, too, uh, in my home office here. Yeah, and you know, in, in 1969 was such a, a, a landmark year in history when you think about all the things that went on. We go back to the space program, Man on the Moon. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, one of my great thrills last year was being able to do a 50th anniversary documentary uh, called uh, One Giant Leap Revisited. And it's uh, about 45 minutes or so long. And if you want to Google it, it's uh, up online uh, at uh, just again, Google the, the uh, phrase One Giant Leap Revisited 
and CBS News Radio, and you should be able to find one of the stations that put it up on a website. No, oh, that would be awesome. I'll definitely uh, give that a listen myself for sure. It was a fun. It was a fun program to do, and we did a lot of stuff that nobody else had ever done before, and uh, that was that was pretty cool. I mean, I actually heard that from a couple of space authority types who said, I didn't know that. It's like, if those guys didn't know it, how cool is that? Yeah, no, most definitely. Well, Peter, it's been a blast having you on, talk a little baseball, talk a little about uh, you know, your coverage of the space program and whatnot. Uh, uh, where can folks uh, follow your work besides at CBS, uh, CBS News? Well, let's see. Uh, You've got listeners all or listeners all over the place. So, you know, if, yeah, hopefully you've got a CBS News radio uh, affiliate uh, wherever you live. We don't have one here in Orlando, unfortunately, but uh, we have a terrific app, smartphone app and it's free. And we just started uh, broadcasting on Sirius XM. So if you listen to the POTUS channel on Sirius XM, which is... Uh, 124 on the XM side. I don't know what it is on the Sirius side. It is 124 on Sirius. Listen at the top of the hour for the uh, CBS newscasts uh, every day. That's awesome. Well, Peter, thanks so, so much again for taking the time. Great to, great to uh, visit with you again after all this time, and uh, we enjoyed having you here. Jeff, my pleasure. It's great to reconnect with you after all these years. And, and looking at you now, you know, I'm thinking, boy, I remember this guy when he actually had hair. <laughs> well, you know, I just got my first haircut in three months, just two hours I, ago. <laughs> I wish I'd seen the picture. I got I got mine uh, about two weeks ago, and it's as short as it's ever been now. Yeah, no, I I, I like it lean and trimmed. It's it's it takes ten seconds to dry. <laughs> it, it looks great. And, and listen, do me a favor, and for everybody listening, this pandemic stuff is insane. Uh, please. Be careful. Do the right things. Wear your masks out in public to protect other people. Social distance. Don't fool around with this stuff. I mean, I want everybody to live to see their next birthday and many more beyond that. Absolutely. I concur 100%. Peter, thanks again, buddy. Jeff, thank you. Have a great day. And we'll be back to wrap up this show with a TV tune right after this. Five reasons why. You should listen to or advertise with Captain and Company in the morning. One, just under four decades of professional broadcasting experience. AM, FM, online. Two, programming music you listened to before you settled down and started a family. Three, live every weekday morning just as reliable as your automobile. Four, no spin doctor here. I just can't fix stupid. Five. If you got this far, please go back to reason number one. Weekday mornings right here on your favorite online station. Our primary objective is to keep the groove. I got beef. Oldschool101.com. Forget about it.
Yes, this week's TV tune from the 1980s hit Simon and Simon, about two brothers who are San Diego-based private eyes. Jamison Parker as AJ, Gerald McRaney as Rick. It ran for eight seasons on CBS from 1981 to 1989. Season was almost canceled after season two, but was then saved by the popular Magnum P.I., as they placed Simon and Simon after Magnum on their Thursday night schedule and started season three with a crossover episode as the Simons visited Magnum, followed by a Tom Selleck appearance on their show, which gave Simon and Simon a large audience boost. Tim Reed of WKRP fame joined the show that season as their police friend Downtown Brown. The brothers Simon, complete opposites, as you would imagine, AJB and the smooth pretty boy, and Rick, the rough and gruff tumble type Gerald McRaney would also go on to star in the sitcom Major Dad. Make a lot of guest appearances on other shows, often as a cop or military type character. Simon and Simon, our TV theme for this week. And oh, by the way, some cleanup notes on last week's Diagnosis Murder Breakdown. That series almost met its demise after two seasons. But the summer reruns pulled really good ratings, so CBS brought it back as a mid-season replacement for season three and never looked back from there until their season eight conclusion. You know, the series was actually born out of three Diagnosis Murder movies that was based on Dick Van Dyke's Mark Sloan character that was introduced on the 80s TV show Jake and the Fat Man. Two additional movies were made after the series ended, and uh, from time to time they would either reference an Ottoman or show Mr. Van Dyke bumping into one, saying he didn't see the Ottoman. Obviously, the tongue-in-cheek references to his classic tripping, tripping, (laughs) easy for me to say, I'm tripping, tripping over the Ottoman on the opening theme and credits from the classic Dick Van Dyke show. So we'd like to make sure we tie up some of those loose ends on our little TV theme segment. Once again, thanks to Peter King from CBS News Radio for uh, joining the program today. And uh, by all means, we love your feedback as always, especially with some suggestions on TV tunes from you. I mean, I certainly enjoy uh, uh, making the selections, but I wouldn't mind some audience input either. Jeff Allen Sports Talk at gmail.com is where you can do that. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Allen underscore 88, on Facebook at Jeff Allen 88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.